Just a reminder, the views expressed on the kibitz are solely those of the guests and do not reflect the opinions of the hosts or our sponsors. Hey, have you got tickets yet for our Catskills Kibitz on December 13th in Los Angeles? It is going to be a stellar night of comedy, music, nosh. We'll be setting a pastrami sandwich world record. I'm not kidding. Also, some exciting news just arrived. Uh, our friend, comedian Moshe Kasher, will be joining the show as well. So it's an incredible lineup. You might know Moshe from his Comedy Central show, Problematic, or his Netflix special, Live in Oakland, or his podcast, the Houndtall Discussion Series, or even from our Kasher versus Kasher segments on last season of The Kibitz. Either way, Moshe is brilliant and hilarious, and he'll be at the Kibitz Room at Cantor's Deli on December 13th in Los Angeles, along with Michael Showalter, the Living Sisters, me, and my co-host, Jessica Chaffin. Tickets are still available via our website, kibitzpod.com events, and $5 of every ticket goes to relief efforts for Puerto Rico. So get your tickets now! All right, now I want to wish a very big congratulations to Susan Kaplan of Tucson, Arizona, who is currently healing from a foot fracture, I'm told. She won the very first Kibitz shirt and coffee mug giveaway. Yeah, that's right. We're giving away stuff. Swag. Kibitz swag is available for you. Uh, check out our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash the Kibitz or our Twitter at Kibitz Pod or, of course, our website, kibitzpod.com. And uh, you can find out how to enter and win your very own Kibitz shirt and coffee mug. It's exciting stuff. Check it out. And hey, one more thing really quick. If you like the show, please take 20 seconds and review us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. And now on with the episode. Hi, I'm Dan Crane. And I'm Dan's co-host, Jessica Chaffin. And you're listening to The Kibitz, the podcast about Jewish ideas and culture. Our country is made up of people emigrating. And that's how our country was formed with people who fled persecution and came over here, not only Jewish, but all kinds of Catholics and Protestants. That was my 96-year-old Nana. Actually, she's 97 now. God comes bless out. her. Good Baruch Lord. Hashem. Yeah. Uh, she and I were talking about the current political climate in the United States and the Trump administration's efforts to severely limit or just ban entirely both legal and illegal immigrants and refugees. An effort which, though my Nana has witnessed it before, she couldn't really fathom. For the grace of God, thank God, you know, I'm almost at the end of my life and I'm lucky I'm all right being Jewish and I... Well, tell me a joke to make me feel better. I, sometimes I tell a joke and think, what am I doing with these jokes when there's so much terrible going on? So, with, as my Nana said, so much terrible going on, this episode of The Kibitz is all about immigration. When Trump issued his executive order to curb immigration from a selection of Muslim-majority countries, and I make a point about that because I think... 
uh, it was not an arbitrary decision who was in and who was out. No, which sure, only yeah. speaks to the hypocrisy of this whole scenario. Um, by the way, not advocating a total Muslim ban. Yeah, no. Quite the opposite, yeah, exactly. but could be could be read both I ways. I suppose it could. Um, it, seemed to, it seemed to strike a chord of eerie and disturbing familiarity with Jews everywhere, or I hope, but I think there's a lot of Jews. Well, sorry, now I'm editorializing again. I'll stop. <laughs> I think so. A lot, a lot of Jews felt it. It seemed to. It uh, seemed, I'm not going to speak for all Jews. It seemed to strike a chord with, well, except for the Jews in his administ administration, right. like Stephen Miller, who yeah, were behind exactly. it. Um, it seemed to strike a chord of eerie and disturbing familiarity with some Jews everywhere. To put this in perspective, we're going to hear a story about Jewish immigrants fleeing Germany in 1939 to come to the United States. And we have some stories of Jews on the front lines of our current battle over immigrants and refugees. Last, we'll make the case that there are ways which we can all help, including, perhaps surprisingly, with our stomachs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All on this episode of The, the Kibbutz. Oh wait, so all right, so where what what's Where do it? I stand? <laughs> where do you stand? Damn, do you believe in immigration? We really should have talked about this before you hired me. Where do I stand on on the on the immigration? Um, I think it is per, per, again, the views expressed yeah. on this podcast are not the views of the podcast hosts except when they come right out of their own mouths and they start <laughs> with the word I. Um, I think it is despicable for any Jewish person to not stand up and say um that this is an outrage this the only reason you and i are sitting in these somewhat comfortable chairs recording this show right somewhat. now <laughs> mine's i think more comfortable than yours <laughs> um such a gentleman uh is because somebody gave one of our relatives a chance and the opportunity for a new life and uh, we're seeing serious echoes of that right now and i think anyone that would stand in the way of um, people that come to our country with good intention and a desire to improve the uh, circumstances of their family is a selfish monster. That's right. Well, yeah. I, I, I'm going to play devil's avocado for here for a second. Uh, so I've been living in London for uh, for about seven months here. And um, we've had, you know, there was a period where it was like every day it seemed like there was a new terrorist attack. By people who were already living. By in the people country. that were already living here, absolutely, yeah. um, and, and many of and whom were here. born here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you can see. So I, I'm not saying let's forget about safety. Right. I'm just saying when you have you know twenty thousand Syrian doctors looking for a place to drive a cab, yeah, it would be fine to give them somewhere to go. <laughs> no, and so, I think we get into this later with David. But and I've said this many times, but. The worst thing most of these people are bringing to your country, to your uh, town, is an incredibly fresh pita bread that you didn't know that you that's loved. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to start. So, before we start thinking about the present day situation, uh, we thought a little context might be useful. The following text is taken from the Holocaust Memorial Museum and has been condensed from its original form. On May 13, 1939, the German transatlantic liner St. Louis sailed from Hamburg, Germany to Havana, Cuba. On the voyage were 937 passengers. Almost all were Jews fleeing from the Third Reich. Most were German citizens, some were from Eastern Europe, and a few were officially stateless. The majority of the Jewish passengers had applied for U.S. visas and had planned to stay in Cuba only until they could enter the United States. But by the time the St. Louis sailed, 
there were signs that political conditions in Cuba might keep the passengers from landing there. Since the Kristallnacht pogrom of November 9th and 10th, 1938, the German government had sought to accelerate the pace of forced Jewish emigration. The German Foreign Office and the Propaganda Ministry also hoped to exploit the unwillingness of other nations to admit large numbers of Jewish refugees to justify the Nazi regime's anti-Jewish goals and policies both domestically in Germany and in the world at large. The owners of the St. Louis, the Hamburg America Line knew even before the ship sailed that its passengers might have trouble disembarking in Cuba. The passengers, who had landing certificates and transit visas issued by the Cuban Director General of Immigration, did not know that Cuban President Federico Laredo Bru had issued a decree just a week before the ship sailed that invalidated all recently issued landing certificates. The voyage of the St. Louis attracted a great deal of media attention. Even before the ship sailed from Hamburg, right-wing Cuban newspapers deplored its impending arrival and demanded that the Cuban government cease admitting Jewish refugees. Like the United States and the Americas in general, Cuba struggled with the Great Depression. Many Cubans resented the relatively large number of refugees, including 2,500 Jews. Like the United States and the Americas in general, Cuba struggled with the Great Depression. Many Cubans resented the relatively large number of refugees, including 2,500 Jews, whom the government had already admitted into the country because they appeared to be competitors for scarce jobs. Hostility toward immigrants fueled both anti-Semitism and xenophobia. Both agents of Nazi Germany and indigenous right-wing movements hyped the immigrant issue in their publications and demonstrations, claiming that incoming Jews were communists. Reports about the impending voyage fueled a large anti-Semitic demonstration in Havana on May 8th, five days before the St. Louis sailed from Hamburg. The rally, the largest anti-Semitic demonstration in Cuban history, had been sponsored by Grau San Martin, a former Cuban president. Grau spokesman Primitivo Rodriguez urged Cubans to, quote, fight the Jews until the last one is driven out. The demonstration drew 40,000 spectators. Thousands more listened on the radio. When the St. Louis arrived in Havana Harbor on May 27, the Cuban government admitted 28 passengers. 22 of them were Jewish and had valid U.S. visas. The remaining six, four Spanish citizens and two Cuban nationals, had valid entry documents. The remaining 908 passengers had been awaiting entry visas and carried only Cuban transit visas. 743 had been waiting to receive U.S. visas. The Cuban government refused to admit them or allow them to disembark from the ship. After Cuba denied entry to the passengers of the St. Louis, the press throughout Europe and the Americas, including the United States, brought the story to millions of readers throughout the world. Though U.S. newspapers generally portrayed the plight of passengers with great sympathy, only a few journalists and editors suggested that the refugees be admitted to the United States. Sailing so close to Florida that they could see the lights of Miami, some passengers on the St. Louis cabled President Franklin D. Roosevelt asking for refuge. Roosevelt never responded. The State Department and the White House had decided not to take extraordinary measures to permit the refugees to enter the United States. Public opinion in the United States, although ostensibly sympathetic to the plight of refugees and critical of Hitler's policies, continued to favor immigration restrictions. The Great Depression had left millions of people in the United States unemployed and fearful of competition for the scarce few jobs available. It also fueled anti-Semitism, xenophobia, nativism, and isolationism. 
A Fortune magazine poll at the time indicated that 83% of Americans opposed relaxing restrictions on immigration. President Roosevelt could have issued an executive order to admit the St. Louis refugees. But this general hostility to immigrants, the gains of isolationist Republicans in the congressional elections of 1938, and Roosevelt's consideration of running for an unprecedented third term as president, were among the political considerations that militated against taking this extraordinary step in an unpopular cause. Following the U.S. government's refusal to permit the passengers to disembark, the St. Louis sailed back to Europe on June 6, 1939. The passengers did not return to Germany, however. Jewish organizations, particularly the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, negotiated with four European governments to secure entry visas for the passengers. Great Britain took 288 passengers. The Netherlands admitted 181 passengers. Belgium took in 214 passengers. And 224 passengers found at least temporary refuge in France. Of the 288 passengers admitted by Great Britain, all survived World War II save one, who was killed during an air raid in 1940. Of the 620 passengers who returned to the continent, 87, 14%, managed to emigrate before the German invasion of Western Europe in May 1940. 532 St. Louis passengers were trapped when Germany conquered Western Europe. Just over half, 278, survived the Holocaust. 254 died. It's difficult to hear that story and not see the many parallels with today. What's encouraging, I think, is that so many Jews have been on the front lines of today's battles over immigration and refugees. Absolutely. You might remember Rabbi Susan Goldberg from our Atheism episode. She's the rabbinical consultant for the Amazon series Transparent. And she's also the rabbi at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, where she created what she calls a spiritual community called Nefesh, an independent spiritual community that exists within the larger institution at the temple. In April of this year, Rabbi Susan was arrested. Here's what happened. One of the things that's incredible about Los Angeles is the diversity uh, of faiths that we have and the, and the tremendous different practices. And so as a group of religious leaders, it felt like, wow, to be able to stand at a nice detention center in during Holy Week, during Passover. Uh, and as you know, for Jews, Passover is really about talking directly about liberation mm-hmm. and about freedom. And it just felt, you know, on that day when people were saying, why are you here? It's like just continuously kept saying, this is Passover. It's not appropriate for these vans to be rounding immigrants up on Passover. And so what we did is we blocked the driveway where the vans would exit. Uh, and we did a Seder, uh, uh, a shortened Seder there. And then there was the football and we ritual, uh, which was happening on that Thursday in the Holy Week tradition. And the uh, Episcopal priests were washing the feet of immigrants who had crossed the border. In fact, wow. a man there who had lost a couple limbs crossing the border. Wow. And talking about the harrowing journey of immigrants to, to get to this country. And one of the things I want to say growing up in the neighborhoods that I did 
in Los Angeles um, amongst uh, Mexican and Central American immigrants my whole life is one of the things that I think that people forget is that they would, um, there's always a longing for their home country. To, to make this perilous journey is not because you want to, but it's because that the conditions are so that in order to take care of your families, you have to get to a place, even though it means risking your life to get here, yeah. to be able to try and support your family. And not only is the journey horrible, but the idea of how they're now being, you know, blamed, it's, it's, it's scapegoating. You know, we have tremendous issues in our country around economic injustice and around a system that's not been working for everyone. And it's uh, unfortunately kind of traditional um, in this culture and in others to scapegoat certain groups. And it's become clear that immigrants have been those that are being scapegoated. And, and, and again, that's so familiar to Jewish people. Sure. We've often been a scapegoat. So for all of those reasons, it felt important to stand at ICE. And it also felt important to make a bigger statement that um, that we knew that the stakes were really high. I mean, I, I don't take doing nonviolent civil disobedience lightly. I mean, I, I'm a, I've studied over many years uh, Dr. King's work and the work of Gandhi and, and, and that you do it when, when it's called for. And it feels like in this country we've gotten to this state um, in which it's, call, it's, it's called for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say also that um, when the ban on um, immigrants from Muslim countries uh, happened and uh, a group of us went immediately to LAX to support um, the immigrants trying to come in and the attorneys who were working tirelessly to support them, it was stunning the amount of Jewish people who responded immediately. One of those attorneys Rabbi Susan was referring to is this woman. So my name is Talia Inlander. I am a senior staff attorney at Public Counsel, a legal nonprofit in Los Angeles, and I work in our Immigrants' Rights Project here. Talia has been involved in immigrants' rights work for about 10 years, mostly working with immigrants held by immigration authorities in detention centers. She told me about the time when LAX became a de facto detention center following the Trump administration's first travel ban. She was one of the first immigration lawyers to show up there. We spoke in May of this year, before the Supreme Court had weighed in on the travel ban. The travel ban, the first travel ban came down on a Friday afternoon, um, I learned about it just before just before Shabbat um, began. Um, but when I woke up on Saturday morning, um, I usually keep my keep my phone turned off um, for Shabbat, and I try to stay away from from my phone and computer uh, a little bit on uh, on the Sabbath. Um, but my wife Daniela's phone was turned on um, and she had gotten an alert about what was happening about at airports across the country. And she said, you know, I really think you should turn your phone on. <laughs> See what's going on. <laughs> I, th- I think God uh, would so approve. I, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah God, God would approve. Yeah. Um, no lightning struck me. I yeah. turned my phone on and um, I had urgent messages saying, you know, are you willing to be, you know, sort of, sort of take the lead at, at LAX Um in, in organizing lawyers to, you know, to fight what's, what's going on down there. And uh, so I immediately jumped in and said, yes, um, by uh, 11, 11.30 a.m. I was down at the airport. I was among uh, the first attorneys on the ground at LAX, um, followed by, you know, an army, really, of attorneys and volunteers 
coming down to help that that Saturday mm-hmm. to um, you know to combat what was happening on the ground. The whole day was was really it was just surreal. You know, you're just sort of like you feel like you've somehow like stepped into this. You know, someone stepped into another country or something. You know, like yeah. it's just like not not a world, not a not a country that you recognize. And uh, as I was, you know, as you know, it was three three thirty, and we were arguing with CDP. You know, there's a court order. You know, we have it to show you. Um, he just this CDP officer looked at me and said, "You know, this this is America." <laughs> I thought, well. Yeah, right. <laughs> like that's exactly my point. This is America. You know, we have very different visions, uh, clearly, of what America is. You know, yeah. he was sort of like, you can't just come in here and tell me how to. You know, <laughs> I thought we we we're like we're a country that's law abiding, you know, and then yeah. um, it was really um, pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, you know, for me personally, my um, you know, my father was born in a displaced persons camp or refugee camp in Austria. I know his parent, my parents, my grandparents are survivors of, of the Holocaust. And he was born in 1948 and, in, um, in a refugee camp and they immigrated to Israel, um, after that. Uh, and then my father eventually, uh, immigrated to the United States as, as a young adult. Um, and I think I've always, you know, had a connection to other cultures and other lands and certainly like to the plight of, of to refugees and those, those fleeing wars a result of my own personal history. And I think that a lot of us, you know, a lot of American Jews share that history, you know, are, are here solely as a result of the fact that our families, you know, someone was able to escape and find a place of refuge um, somewhere in the world, whether it was here in Italy or in Israel or Canada or wherever they are in Latin America. And, um, and so I think it's not surprising that those of us who are still very much tied to, you know, a generation of refugees, even though we, we ourselves are not, um, are out there on the front lines. Rabbi Susan agrees that Jews have been on the front lines of this issue because of our history as immigrants who were once turned away from America due to racism and xenophobia. As we were saying, Nan. As we were saying at the beginning. You know, it became very clear that this issue there was no, oh, let's try and think about how this relates to Jewish people. It feels like it very deeply strikes an immediate chord with our own family histories mm-hmm. um, and felt so familiar, you know, to Jewish people being told that we couldn't come to this country uh, trying to flee the Holocaust when the boats were turned away. And, and just the kind of rhetoric and prejudice that was spread about Jewish immigrants. It feels there's an immediate link. I wanted to say one thing, too, about the situation of immigrants now is that if you are not living in an immigrant community, you can kind of be in a reality in which you you miss it, you know? Dan, I want to tell you about a great podcast that I was recently on. It's called Yo, Is This Racist? That's a great podcast. I love that podcast. You are a listener of this podcast, right? I, I absolutely am, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Andrew T. Yeah, Isn't he terrific, Andrew? Every week, he and a guest answer listener questions to determine if something is, in fact, racist. I was on a show recently. Not just racist, but could be anti-Semitic, right? Well, when I'm in town, it is. I made sure that we discussed that, much to some of the listeners' chagrin. Um, But really, it's an amazing, I have to say, in all honesty, jokes aside, it's an amazing forum um, for people to ask questions that they might be afraid to ask in their everyday life and have no outlet for that kind of thing. And just to talk about 
um, a lot about how people who maybe don't feel like they always have a place at the table, how they see things. Um, and it yeah, was awesome. It was absolutely great. It's sort of the perfect podcast for our day and age. Um, something everybody should be listening to because it's, you know, people... Uh, complain about political correctness but this is really the problem is nobody's talking about these issues so it's actually kind of a funny and interesting way to uh to get at the heart of a lot of these issues so check it out i I agree it is a perfect podcast for our times all right so yeah you can hear episodes of yo is this racist every wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts like stitcher apple podcasts or earwolf.com yo is this racist and now back to our episode When helping to fight for the rights of immigrants, there might be another weapon one might not expect. Eat more food of people that are seen as the other. That is Toronto-based author and writer David Sachs. David wrote a piece in The New Yorker earlier this year titled The Shiracha Argument for Immigration. Shiracha. Shiracha. How do you say it? Shiracha. 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 (laughs) That's our episode. That's all we have time for today. In which he argued that it's one thing to demonize unseen, faceless Syrians and Mexicans as the other. It is another thing to eat their falafel and tostadas for lunch three times a week and still hold fast to those beliefs. In fairness, Chipotle makes it very easy to not feel <laughs> That's true. the other. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very disembodied, I think. And, and don't just cook their food at home, but, you know, go out to their communities and and talk to the people who are making that food and tell them who you are and, and, and start conversations with them. Break down those barriers. You know, I, I went to a Syrian bakery here in the suburbs of Toronto. The one I wrote about in the article, I was there a couple weeks ago and talked to the owners and we chatted and they were asking my background and, and I told them I was Jewish and I had encountered this food, you know, when I've been in Israel and it wasn't all of a sudden like the doors closed and a Hezbollah flag went up. <laughs> right. It, it, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. They started this conversation about Jewish food and what is it like here? It seems very different. And again, you know, they sent me to a Lebanese shawarma place, which was incredible, incredible shawarma. And I had the conversation with the owner there. And now, you know, I, there is a demystification about that. I'm not only attracted to the deliciousness of the baklava and the shawarma that I had, but I, you know, was able to bridge conversations with people who I normally probably wouldn't encounter in any way in my life. There is no doubt that there's been an explosion in global cuisine in the U.S. in the past few decades, but it's not like the ubiquity of ethnic food be it authentic or, say, Taco Bell or Chipotle, as you say, Mm. be it hummus or blueberry bagels. God forbid. uh, God forbid. Has led to a commensurate rise in tolerance. I asked David why. Well, listen, that is, that is, you know, that is the big jump, right? And, and, and so people are, are willing to, first of all, have, have dual identities. They will eat a plate of nachos and still say, go, those goddamn Mexicans are taking my job while eating the nachos, <laughs> right? right? At, at, at that restaurant. Right. I love um, my, like, tr- Trump and his uh, taco salad. Exactly. Yeah. The, you know, the, the food becomes deracinated. It, it is, it is removed, I think. I think, you know, it's not just the flavor that does it. It is, it is the relationships that are built around food that's really the long-term thing. And that takes a while, a much longer time to build, right? It is going to that Mexican restaurant, you know, repeatedly every week or so for lunch and getting to know the people who work there and seeing them as individuals and humans. That's what builds those relationships to see that they are a part of the community. They're not outsiders. They're not apart from it. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and that takes, that takes, you know, a generation or two yeah. uh, often to happen. But I think food is that it, it is the easiest point of entry and is the one where it is, it is easiest to build those bridges, um, in ways that others just, you know, it's, it, there's much more of a challenge. Think about Italian food. In the early 20th century, um, late 19th century, when Italian immigrants, Sicilian immigrants were coming in large numbers to, you know, the United States and, and Canada and, 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 um, and even, you know, England, you know, the, their food was seen as the other. It was garlicky. It was this tomato sauce. It was unhealthy. It was greasy. You know, these were, these were sort of the other. These were Catholics. There was something that was upsetting the majority. And then, you know, you get to the point now where not only is pizza and spaghetti and mozzarella just, you know, seen as part of the food landscape that you don't even notice. It's like water. Um, but that, you know, the Italian community, like in many ways, you know, the Jewish community in, in many of these different countries, depending on what group you're with, um, is just seen as, you know, part of, part of the mass, part of, you know, the mainstream, no longer the outsider. And, and I think, you know, food is one of those things that allows that to happen. And maybe it just takes time. I asked Talia, the immigration attorney, if she felt at all optimistic about what's happening now. I think uh, I think we have some very, very difficult times ahead. I also think we have shown both as a legal and advocacy community and as a community more broadly that um, there are many people willing to stand up and fight in all different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that is very encouraging. And I think a part of the trick will be, you know, it's, it's not just going to be, you know, one weekend of, you know, one weekend after the travel ban with everybody showing up at the airport or, you know, a few or even a few weeks of that. We're talking about months and years of really sustained pressure and advocacy and fight. And I think the challenge for all of us will be to keep our keep our endurance, keep our stamina mm-hmm. and, um, you know, keep keep speaking truth to power as um, as it uh, as these new policies sort of unfold. Rabbi Susan, as one might expect from a rabbi, feels a little bit more optimistic. I really think that, uh, especially in these times of crisis, they can feel very scary, and they are scary. But part of what is so moving is that these are the moments that people also are motivated to act. And the kind of action and compassion uh, that we're seeing Acts of compassion, acts of chesed, of loving kindness. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. It's so incredible. People who I never would have thought are reaching out and saying, how do I get involved? I need to do something. Mm. Uh, and the things that people are doing are, are so moving. And then there's also the moments where you take the risk at the grocery store when you hear a comment to say, oh, would, I would love to talk to you about that. I actually know some Muslim people and I haven't experienced them that way, that people are taking, um, you know, brave risks of heart at this time. And that's really what we need. Um, and, and it's happening. And, I, and because of that, I feel incredibly optimistic. And here's David Sachs talking about eating shawarma in Toronto which is delicious. I love shawarma, especially Toronto shawarma. <laughs> Ever had a good Toronto shawarma? <laughs> the best. So lean. I, you know, was able to bridge conversations with people who I normally probably wouldn't encounter in any way in my life. Yeah. And it wasn't that these were the refugees that I had to go out and protest and save. You know, I was doing something that was pleasurable. But in doing that, I was building 
essentially what is the community that I want, right? The country that I want, the city that I want, one where differences isn't just tolerated, but it's celebrated and sought after. So if that's what you want, then go seek that out. Build those relationships, have those conversations, see it as more than just something on your plate, but a people and a culture behind it and, and do more to get to know that. When someone says, oh, those people, you're like, well, those are the people that made my lunch. Those are the people who um, who I eat at the restaurant every every week and, mm. and you know, I'm going to stand up for those people. You can also donate to Hias at their website, hias.org slash donate. And we'll include some links on our website. We also have a special episode coming out later this week featuring my interview with Mark Hatfield, the president and CEO of Hias. It's a really interesting interview, so check it out. So what's your family's immigration story? How did you feel when the executive order came out? Have you joined other Jews on the front lines in this current battle? Send us your stories to kibitzpod at gmail.com. How do you spell that? K-I-B-I-T-Z. That's right. Pod at gmail.com. And we'll read them on an upcoming episode. That's it for this episode of The Kibitz. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Susan Goldberg, again, Talia Inlander, David Sachs, and David Anna. For more about these guests, please check out our website at kibitzpod.com. If you'd like the episode, please review us on iTunes and tell your friends. Or do some tweeting for crying out loud. Yeah, let's, get on the Twitter. Get on the tweet. Uh, this episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane. Special thanks to my co-host, Jessica Chaffin, as well as Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, David Jarkowski, Francine Hermelin, and Reboot. Our music is courtesy of my band, Ray and Remora, and our main theme is courtesy of Nunon Plu. And as my great-grandmother used to say... That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks Thanks for for listening listening to to The Kibitz. If you like this episode and want to keep hearing more from The Kibitz, please consider making a charitable, tax-deductible donation to Reboot, the Jewish nonprofit organization behind The Kibitz, at rally.org slash reboot. That's rally.org slash reboot. Thanks.